Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me today for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. My guest today is a man whose ministry I first became aware of in the late 80s. Dennis Peacock is the founder and president of Go Strategic, a nonprofit organization dedicated to demonstrating the relevance of Christianity to every area of contemporary life. Back in the early 90s, I was teaching a church history class to homeschoolers, and because I wanted them to be oriented to what it means to be a Christian and the opposition to it, I shared with them a CD recording which combined the music of Ted Sandquist and the preaching of Dennis Peacock entitled Battle Songs for the War Between Two Seats. Fast forward to 2020-21 and the COVID lockdown and the stress and tension I was seeing all around me, I went looking for this CD knowing I needed bolstering. When I couldn't find it, I ordered another one and began playing it regularly in my car, encouraging me to reaffirm that the church is on the winning side. Dennis, thanks for joining me today and serving as my drill sergeant to remind me that we are in a war and that when I consider the war too difficult to pursue, you get me back on track. Well, what an honor. I love your story. And it's amazing. We did that recording, oh, 30 years ago, and it's uh, being rebirthed, so to speak. So I'm glad to be with you, Andrea. Yeah. I didn't know whether I should call you a drill sergeant or a general, but you acted more like a drill sergeant for me. So I'm going to call it drill sergeant. (laughs) That's fine. So give my listeners um, some background on how you came to be a believer in Jesus Christ and become a catalyst for Christian action? When I shorthand my introduction sometimes to people, I just begin by saying I'm an old revolutionary from Berkeley who Jesus trapped. (laughs) Uh, And uh, that's where I'll start. I was headed, I believe, to be a professional athlete. I did the decathlon in track and field and was in line, at least as a possibility of being a significant competitor, Olympics, all that, was a state pole vaulting champion in the state of Washington. And all of those athletics ended me up in Berkeley. I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington, went to high school there, came to Berkeley on a football track scholarship, and in my sophomore year, tore up a ham- my hamstring and my left leg. And that was the end of my athletics, which I'd hoped to play in the NFL. So running back in football, being a fast guy. Now, I had met the Lord as a young boy. My uncle led me in the salvation prayer when I was about five years old. And I had what I call a yo-yo walk. Uh, The world system was very attractive to me. Uh, And I would go back and forth in degrees of of, uh, relationship with Jesus. My mother was a Mormon. So I occasionally went to church with mom, but never seemed to connect deeply with that. And backslid when I left Seattle and moved to Berkeley. Berkeley, I kind of escaped from being a role model. I was pretty famous in Seattle in those years as an athlete. Again, in the crisis, the civil rights movement is what really snared me. I was so offended when I found out what was going on in the South. I'm sure we had our own benign racism, so to speak, in Seattle, but it was nothing like what we 
discovered when we went south. Our, our football team wasn't going to be allowed to stay in a hotel when we played Duke, which totally blew all my fuses. My sense of justice was outraged. So in those years, 1963, 4, and into 65, you know, I marched. Uh, I then uh, changed my major at Berkeley from psychology into political theory, which uh, was the hand of God uh, getting a hold of me because I've spent all my adult life dealing with worldview. I got a tremendous education and had the privilege of studying with a professor named Sheldon Wolin, who Gary North, my friend Gary knows, knew about Sheldon Wolin. And he was a mentor and considered to be, if you looked him up, uh, one of the premier political theoreticians of the 20th century. And I'm a pretty much all in or not in guy. And I went all in, in terms of my academic study of the history of Western philosophy from the pre-Hellenic Greeks up to the attempted fusion of existentialism and socialism with Marcusa and Sartre, and it didn't work. And I considered myself a Marxist there for a season, studied Marx, Engels, studied the revolution and Lenin. And so studying revolutional theory and revolutional history, again, the Holy Spirit was doing that with, I'm sure the enemy had no idea what I was getting out of it and what I would do with all that. I dropped out of graduate studies, disillusioned eventually with the intellectual world, which I saw having a lot of great ideas, but doing little to nothing with it. Ran a pool hall for a while, Telegraph Avenue, again, right in the middle of the revolution. Got involved in drugs, mostly smoking, some of the hallucinogenics, and eventually because of, I put a lot of energy into in macroeconomics as well. I was hired by the AFL-CIO uh, California headquarters in San Francisco and worked as a research economist uh, for years there in the AFL-CIO headquarters. I, at that point, pretty much had no place for Christians Maybe Jesus, but Christianity, no. I viewed Christians as uh, inept and not too bright. In my more unexpurged view was I couldn't imagine playing on a team as an athlete where the team rooted for the opposition to win so we could get off the battlefield or the playing field. That absurdity of Christians obviously not trying to win because they were so uninformed and uncommitted to what is involved in creating cultural revolution. And I've spent 60 years at this point, I'm in my late 70s, 60 years watching the left outsmart the right hands down consistently with a degree of angst, I might say, as that took place. So I had a genuine experience with Jesus, who I was not looking for. I will call it, for the sake of discussion here, a profound encounter with him. And I said to him, if you love me, please don't make me a Christian. I, don't, I need neither a lobotomy, nor do I want to be castrated. Uh, I say that in humor but I was seriously there. But the experience was very real. And uh, in 1969, I had an entire capitulation and gave myself and all that I am to Jesus and have, by his grace, been there for, what is this, 53 years, 
full tilt to the hilt, so to speak. My wife, I had a, one of my students at Berkeley. I was a TA. Uh, I ended up marrying her, very bright. She had the same intellectual background as, as I do, not qu- quite the same amount of economics. Started a Bible study. I devoured the scripture. Uh, I mean, I just could not get enough of it. And believe it or not, I read it as a political economist. How could I read the Bible as anything but that? since it was both my passion and my formal intellectual history. Now, about 18 months into this, I have a crisis because I realized that the world system had taught me everything I knew about history, psychology, sociology, economics, et cetera, et cetera. And what am I going to do? Where am I going to get a worldview? that is Christian-based. I've got to be re- re-ground, retrained, because I am at heart a revolutionary in the sense I want to see society aligned as much as is possible with the Word of God and principle-based economics and principle-based administration, foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera. So this Bible study that I started grew into a church, and then it grew into a network of churches. And I found myself functioning as a bishop, as it were, overseeing a number of churches on the West Coast, while at the same time I was lecturing on worldview, uh, found, uh, you know, a, a number of folks that were writing very deep, And right in the center of all that was R.J. Rushdoony, who all I could say is, wow, I had no idea that Christianity had, you know, that there were people like this. So Rush had a, a major effect on me, as did a number of people. Those years were in the latter 70s. Schaefer came along. I met a, a wonderful, crazy man named Jay Grimstead, who was a, a spiritual revolutionary as well. And really, I spent until 2010, from 1978, when I started traveling, May of 78, I've flown three and a half million miles around this planet teaching and overseeing global church networks, while at the same time we started a distance learning school on Christian worldview in 1992 and in 1996, a distance learning school on biblically-based economics and business. So I've spent 53 years, whatever it is, overseeing church networks and constantly teaching on Christian worldview. I've been an organizer that started groups in more than 35 states in the U.S., lectured extensively around the world, a lot of focus in Europe, focus in Africa, and a lot of focus in Central and South America where once I was discovered as a Christian with a history of political strategy and awareness, I have had the privilege of sharing with many presidents and political groups, Congress, et cetera. That is not whoopee, you know, good for you. I'm just sharing that. To bring this introduction to a close, I have, started a group in the mid-80s after Reagan's second inaugural called the Anatole Group, named after a hotel where we had our inaugural meeting, wherein uh, we called together most of the major Christian activists, global leaders, but primarily here in the U.S., focus on the family, all the major evangelicals who were awakening to a Christian role in government. And out of that did a lot of organizing in the states, particularly at citywide levels, 
because uh, the Hebrew Republic was governed very locally. Uh, elders in the gates, and we're in a global major test right now, as many of you would know, on the whole issues of localism versus centralization. In 2010, I got very ill, uh, caught something in Central America that went into acute colitis, and it uh, dominoed down uh, to the point where it went into heart failure. And I've been very healthy by God's grace and all that travel and went into a, a health crisis. And that changed my life. It gave me an opportunity to relate to millions of people who go through life in pain and sickness, et cetera. And I'd never touched that. And apparently the Holy Spirit obviously believed that I needed that. When I came out of that, I was out of ministry for about 18 months. They found very early cancer in a right vocal cord. So I had to go through radiation and all of that. And when I came out of that period of being out of ministry for 18 months, I said, all right, God, what do I do now? And I believe the Holy Spirit very clearly said, I want you to stop the international travel. I want you to focus on the United States. I want you to resume what you were doing in the 80s, now that you're much further down the road, hopefully wiser, and know a, a whole lot more leaders around the world, which I do. And I started a thing that we call the Statesman Project, which over the last eight years has now grown into what we call the Global Council of Nations, where uh, myself and leaders from more than 50 nations have come together in coalition and a strategy to do all that we can to press and awaken the church into where it needs to be to really genuinely disciple nations, not just leading people to Christ, but changing uh, political social, cultural laws, and all nine constitutions. And I am working now globally to do that. And I want to say one last thing about that. And Andrea, thank you for your patience. But I think this introduction would be essential to wonder why is this guy saying what he's doing? Has he earned the right to say it? Does he know what he's talking about? And are they, are they beginning to win or lose? And I'll close with this. I was, again, deeply offended when I discovered Davos way back when and said, why in the world or the world system, you know, have got global strategy and who's got any global strategy in the church, in the, in the ecclesia? And by the way, my discovery of ecclesia <laughs> has got a whole other world in it and pushing for the gap between what we now see the church to be and what ecclesia literally meant when Jesus used the phrase in Matthew 18. But basically what we want to do, God helping us, is actually end up forming a Christian-based Davos where the Christian strategists of the world can unite in what it means to disciple nations. So with that, Andrea, I will shut up and <laughs> hope that I did, <laughs> didn't go further than you wanted me to go. No, no, no. Part of my rule is I bring people on because I want my listeners to know the people I respect. But you said a lot of things there. So I'm going to go back to your time at Berkeley. A lot of times people will look at the pre- Christian life of an individual and decide it has no value. You mean you like only the become Apostle Paul? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But the important part to realize that in God's economy, Dennis Peacock was selected and elected before the foundations of the world. Yes. So just like Saul, the Pharisee, had training that made it so that his effectiveness as Paul the Apostle would be there. 
first and foremost, you recognized that there was a conflict of visions, of worldviews, and God allowed you to struggle and search so that when the answer came, you wouldn't wonder, is this really the answer? Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, 10,000%. What Satan meant for evil, God was using to train me, and I was able to study at the feet of some really smart people. Right. Now, in my case, in the case of my husband, we were involved in a cult group, and this cult group was very determined to impact the world as it sounds like the groups you were part of. And when we came to faith, we were like, huh? How come these people are so happy and complacent and nobody sees the conflict which we saw? And I believe that's why you're lecturing your sermons on the war between two seeds is so important for people to get. You know, you can't fight in a war if you don't know people are shooting at you. So, I'd ask you at this point to talk a little bit about this orientation of identifying the war and then identifying what side you are on in this war. Well, there's another piece I didn't bring up, and I have to precurse this by saying I curse every Asian demon. I curse the demons in the NFL and the NBA and everywhere else, but When I was disillusioned intellectually and Western philosophy did not fuse and all of us who were studying it, it was game over, you know, where we go. And parenthetically that the West ended up in Nietzsche is a mind blower to me, the old timers. But I I'm an athlete. God made me a warrior and I had to understand that's who he made me. And I began to study Japanese karate and jiu-jitsu. I found a Japanese dojo and had been fascinated uh, as a young kid. I remember some soldiers coming back from World War II, and I was a young kid, and they had learned a little judo, and I thought that was really cool. So I actually, in the parallel of all this, have studied and, and taught martial arts for 45 years. I'm a, sen- I'm a senior instructor. The Japanese are the most skilled educators I've seen. I'd love to talk about that. But not only was I intellectually where I was, but God was training me in warfare because the principles of warfare in mass are based in the principles of warfare in hand-to-hand combat. And that is another area which, since you're bringing up, you know, where is God in pre-Christ traditions and or what did we learn in the world that carried over into what God wanted us to be and do, you know, in him? Well, the training of of strategy and warfare has been augmented in my situation there as well. Continuing with this war umbrella. You know, the scripture is clear. The weapons of our warfare, we battle not against flesh and blood. So there is this motif, and yet modern Christianity, especially the Christianity I encountered when I was first converted, was sort of the, for lack of a better analogy, in the old Rocky and Bullwinkle, Bullwinkle would say when they were about to start in a contest, we'll be lucky if we lose. And that was the perspective that I thought was there. And like you, it's when I ran into Dr. R.J. Rushduni and Calcedon that suddenly everything that I had experienced up through to my conversion, now I was like, I understand righteousness, justice. That's what Jesus was about, pursuing that and making that priority number one. And so when I first encountered your CD with the lectures and the songs, it was bolstering that attitude and like, wow, there's somebody who's actually considering this. Yeah, well, I, I again had to wrestle with Christian pacifism. I'm certainly not advocating violence. By the same token, the war, so to speak, was open for me first from the point of view of the left. 
you know, I've had the privilege of being in the general's tents on both sides of the war. But the left was very clear that it was a war to the death. And I maintained from the beginning that was true, that it was a war to accept a war to the life. And our eschatology has got to reflect that warfare. You know, Matthew 13, anybody that's really serious about discipling nations is going to be living a lot in Matthew 13, especially there in verse 47 to 50, when Jesus talks about this great kingdom net, not church net, kingdom net. And that's a very critical distinction that the mass evangelism that is going to take place as we are in this conflict now, as it really begins to heat up, we're going to have millions of unsaved people congregate around the message of the kingdom of God. And as Jesus said, at the end of that net, the angels are going to come and sort out the saved from the unsaved, which means you've got fellow travelers that are going to be going with the Christian, you know, the real Christian reality, just like you had a mixed multitude in Israel. There were more than a million uh, resident aliens there when censuses were taken, both David and Solomon's. And we're going to have a coagulation around principles with God-fearing, unsaved people as the, the kingdom is preached. And I'll say one more thing about that. Strategically, the, the world system is very familiar with the church and thinks it's able to outwit the church quickly and easily. It has no defense mechanism for the gospel of the kingdom because it's not had to deal with the gospel of the kingdom in which salvation resides but the gospel of the kingdom is bigger than just the issue of salvation. Right. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. The modern church has tended to preach the gospel of personal salvation. Yes. And in the process, the church will say Jesus can save souls, but not the world. Talk about that a bit. Well, again, what Rush did for me, I was pretty clear on the basics, but Rush Dooney and, and others, but especially Rush, who I had the privilege of knowing well, put at a level of depth, especially when he opened for me what we call jurisdictional government and jurisdictional thinking. And what we advocate politically, because we're dealing with economics, we're dealing with foreign affairs, the whole, the whole nine, Obviously, if the kingdom is inclusive of both the spiritual and the natural holistic dimensions of God's creation, then managing the created order, not just managing my soul and whether I drink or smoke, and I believe in holiness, but the gospel of the kingdom is totally comprehensive and insists on the alignment of social economic reality with the principles of the kingdom. And the exciting thing, Andrea, is, you know, I feel like a guy who's had to wait for decades to get here. The Holy Spirit is, is going to change the church, but he can't change the church until the presuppositions about the things we're talking about are sorted through. And we, mankind will not change unless he is forced to change, not by us as Christians, but by circumstances. When COVID-19 showed up, what we've gotten out of this is a total rearrangement of where history is going. And Christians are trying to figure out what is going on. Where do I fit? Am I going to get raptured or am I going to get able to escape the conflict that is coming? And our message is, no, the escape is not, not God's plan. It's transformation. He wants to transform the church into an ecclesia. And ecclesia in, in the Greek civilization 
was a manager of society, a manager of government. When Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, he declared his own war that was connected all the way back to Genesis 3.15 of the war between two seeds. We are in a war. And the, and the issue is, who is going to manage the world order? Is it going to be the satanic uh, foundation? Or is Christ going to be victorious? Now, I want to say one thing right now to the critics who think we're saying that we're going to present a, a full kingdom to Christ before he comes back. I don't believe that. And I don't think there's really that many, even the so-called reconstructionists, you know, we're not post-mill absolutely that we're turning over a perfect planet to Christ. No, I don't believe that. I don't know many that do. What we do believe is God wants to prepare us for eternity. The game is eternity, not time. Time is a gymnasium where God is training us in the management of community and the management of humanity, because that is, as Paul said in Romans 8, 17 to 22, the whole created order is on tiptoes waiting for the church to mature and grow up so that we can assume our role under Christ of managing the created order with him, in him, and through him. Amen to that. When I go back to some of the lines that you shared in that presentation that I referred to, a couple of them really struck hard and I've used them. I've actually plagiarized you a lot without giving credit to you, but I'm sure you don't mind. We're all plagiarists. <laughs> exactly. The idea is when you said how many didn't realize they were signing up for a war, he said, why didn't anybody tell me that yeah. when I became a Christian, I was in a war? And then you go on to say that a lot of Christians today, and I'll say today because a lot is changing with the whole COVID thing, make independent or think they can make independent truces with the devil. Kind of like, I won't bother you. You don't bother me. And we'll get on with life. Yeah, I, I know, have known many Christians who theologically tried to cut that deal with the enemy. Look, can't we just coexist? I'm not going to do, you know, bad stuff. You're not going to turn me into a, you know, a drug addict or an adulterer, whatever we want to talk about here. But just give me space. Now, seriously, we are fighting against princes. In the realm of those princes who rebelled against Christ and his plan. And they play hardball. One of the things that I try and help everybody that is walking or being in any way influenced with me is, look, the war is what forces us to determine what is worth dying for. One of the things that lately I've been taking a lot of people uh, I just came back from a conference here this last week with global leaders. Isaiah 3 is a mind blower. I urge anybody and everybody that is listening or viewing what we're doing, go to Isaiah 3, first 12 verses, because Isaiah enumerates, he makes a list of the priority of what it takes to destroy culture. And the first person that or the first occupation or being, so to speak, that Isaiah said is removed, it takes the plug out of the sink, so to speak, is not the priest, not the prophet, and not the holy man. The one removed first is the spirit of a warrior. Why? Because until somebody is willing, like Jesus, to die for the order that they represent, they will not be able to compete and have victory against the enemy who is equally committed to sell himself totally to the conflict. And before we get out of here, that is where all of us who, are, who will be in the final generation, I don't, I don't personally believe 
It's us right now. I'm not looking for Jesus to come back next week or next year, because I think the conflict is going to be much longer and much deeper than that. But the situation that COVID-19, is it perfectly aligned itself with the demonic strategy of challenging Christianity and sweeping it out of his way because he he views it to be a perfect time because Christians are so concerned with being polite and so concerned with representing Jesus, gentle Jesus, sweet and mild, who obviously Christians did not read the same Bible I did. Jesus, who's coming back on a, on a white horse to uh, just destroy and finalize the earthly battle. That level of reality has got to get deep into the church. As we watch freedom being sucked up under the, the roof of COVID-19, and we're watching the enemy who is not even trying to hide what he's doing. Andrea, that, that is what makes me most amazed is Satan not only has taken the gloves off, he isn't trying to hide his strategies, but he's so clear anybody that is strategically awake and alive, he sees, hey, we're moving into a point of major conflict and the priority of COVID-19 and what the enemy is doing with it is the, if not the elimination, the complete walling in of Christianity away from being a factor challenging the management of the world by the elite. Now, we've got all kinds of economic things that we're going to go through. I happen to run in this global council. We're running with people that play the game at the Federal Reserve Board. We're dealing with serious, high-level leaders. I've been in a meeting in the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Board where members of the board got up and in a meeting that was semi-public but never reported by the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and all the rest of them were in that meeting. I've heard with my own ears guys from the Fed say, We have no idea what to do. We know the system is broken, but from a macro point of view, we don't know what to do. I heard that in an elite meeting in Europe, in Zurich, senior economists in the world. And the real indebtedness uh, called the fiscal gap, which you'll never hear. I've only heard that word once on Fox News, maybe three years ago. But it's the real uh, debt load of when you add up the total debt we're in, including all the uh, retirements, et cetera, et cetera. We're like about $185 trillion. We're not this $22 or $23 trillion. The powers that be do not want us to know how severely bad the situation is. And I'm not making that up. I, I know that. So... Again, we're trying to encourage Christians, Christian leaders, when you preach, you know, the church has sacrificed a lot of people in history who were recognized they were at war and paid the price. I don't know where this is going to go in that way, but I do know that God is going to push the church however far he has to push it to bring it to reality that this conflict is going to settle out with a winner and a loser. And of course, we believe that winner ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. And for Christians, I think we need to understand, and this is another point you make in your, your teaching, on what a gospel actually is, that it's not a feel-good-between-your-ears kind of thing that says, Jesus has forgiven all the things that I thought, said, and did, which he does, but it was much more than that. Would you talk about that? Because back when I first heard you say it is when some major light bulbs went up for me. Gospel 
the word that is used there in the Greek is the good news or the news from a victor's point of view. A gospel is a non-negotiable statement about where a conflict has gone. In the, the war, which is what we call that CD, we talked about Caesar Augustus issuing his gospel. A gospel is a political, more than spiritual, it is a political declaration of the way that a conflict has resolved itself. It, it is a statement of a peace treaty and the terms of the peace. That's another way to say it. So when the early church proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were proclaiming the non-negotiable peace treaty that had been achieved through the death and resurrection of Christ, correct? Absolutely correct. You know, it's interesting. Jesus decided that this war was worth winning and gave his life. Now, the big picture and the end game is God the Father wants to imprint the nature of Jesus Christ in every one of his children. That's the name of the game. And it's going to take eternity to produce that because God is way ahead, way ahead in his being and his purposes from us. But his game is replicate his son in all his children. And whatever the master does, the student should expect is going to happen with them. How many martyrs there will be made this time in history? Because there's been tens of thousands of them before. However many martyrs come, that martyrdom is going to begin with the loss of our reputation. As this thing accelerates, and again, we don't know how fast it's going to go. And a lot of that has to do with when God pulls the plug economically. Because as again, Isaiah 3 says, when God permits a, a famine or an interruption in the food chain, things go very rapidly. We don't know where this is going to go. We do know that the props holding it up are unsustainable. We know that for sure. The first thing that Christians are going to have to get used to losing is whatever reputation we have. We are going to be viewed as being the cause of a lot of things we had nothing to do, all the way back to the origins of historical Christianity. Rome was burned, allegedly, by Christians. Christians were constantly being sorted out and weeded out as being the enemy. We will see some replication of that. I've lived with that expectation from the very beginning because I knew there'll be a day when we can no longer just be polite and not willing to say, hey, we object and we strenuously object. We'll see where that goes, Henry. Another point that has impacted me is this concept of being in a war but how many professing Christians don't realize that, in, in effect, they're either casualties of the war or prisoners of this yeah. war? Part of your ministry seems to be waking them up to the fact it always helps to know where you are. Getting a good diagnosis allows you to proceed. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. A man of Significant influence in my life once said, Dennis, we have no idea how deep the fall was from who we were before we partook federally through Adam and Eve uh, for, on behalf of humanity. We don't know how far the drop was from where we were before the fall and after the fall. And again, the longer I follow Jesus, the more I realize the, the depth of the fall of our nature. Coming to the point where 
me, I, where my I-ness and my singleness of thinking changes. I teach, a, you know, a fair amount on economics and I've developed what I call 12 master principles. It took me more than 40 years to do it. And one of the things that I'm pushing hard is because of this insane argument about socialism, which in every instance in which it's been advocated in and worked out as a system, it's a total failure. And just again, I don't want to get into kingdom-based economics deeply, but I'm not even using the word capitalism anymore. It's too much baggage. What I'm advocating is what we call choice-based economics, which allows us to get into the essence of what produces capital in a godly sense, because we link it with the word reciprocity, which is what takes us into community. The war against community is huge. So the reason I'm bringing that up right now is language strategy is absolutely essential in this situation. The left has taken many words, turned them upside down, emptied them of that meaning, and then put the meaning they wanted back into those words. And again, I've studied Lenin. I know the game, watched it, played for many, many years. We, we need to expect that somewhere, and I'm going to give it a year, two at the most, they're going to be very direct, overt attacks on Christians. People like me, people like Andrea, people who understand the nature of the game and the absoluteness that the enemy is not going to take prisoners. There's no treaties with him. We say deal with it. Uh, God did and made the sacrifices he needed to. The men and women of God in history have done that, and we are not immune from God bringing uh, whatever transformational challenges he's going to do to make us grow up and become leaders that are worth following and have the spiritual grace and the anointing to bring transformation and free people. Freedom is where the game is gained. It is not going into another form of oppression. It's going into a freedom, both personally in terms of character, perception, vision, but in a group of community. And this is an incredibly exciting moment to be alive. I mean, who would want to miss this? This is like an apex of something that, as the Chinese proverb says, may, may you live in challenging times. Well, we live in challenging times. Right. My experience in all this is finally, finally, there are people who are ready to hear this. For the last 20, 25 years, I've talked about the need for Christian education. It was like, yeah. blah, 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 you know, whatever. Now people are concerned about critical race theory, transgenderism, all this other stuff, imposed injections. So rather than saying, well, what took you so long, folks? It's praise God that this time has come. Andrea, you and I are in exactly the same place. In the beginning, back in the, in the late 70s, when we started out preaching this stuff, our early meetings could have been held in a phone booth. <laughs> but now we had a private conversation. I can't tell you how this whole thing is speeding up. There are tens of thousands and tens of thousands of people who are now saying, what is this kingdom of God? What are you guys talking about? Let, you know, let us know. There are leaders, many leaders that are keeping quiet. And the wonderful thing about leaders, presidents, et cetera, if you won't abuse them by using their names publicly or showing them in a newsletter designed to bring in money, you can talk to anybody once 
what you know is known by them. And it, it is so exciting right now, not only in terms of the number of people and the numbers of churches and the thousands of leaders that are beginning to wake up. That is what inspires us. That is what makes the war real, is you can see the Holy Spirit drafting, because he drafts, drafts, capturing people who have no choice, so to speak, but to say, what must I do to be really saved? And when I am saved, what does God want me to do to bring change? Amen. In closing, because I've taken quite a bit of your time, but I'm sure my listeners are appreciating it and they'll probably be mad saying, well, if he was going to willing to talk, why didn't you just keep it going? But these three points that you make very clearly in that CD I referenced one, the role of the word of God. And you make this profound point that Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, and that it's not Christians don't live by bread alone. It's not pastors. Talk a little bit about that first point. God is committed to his word as the standard by which we believe, act, and think. The commandment of living by his word is not just limited to Christians. It's God's will, God's mandate, that humanity should be living by his word. And that is the exciting thing about our alternatives. I mean, a lot of the people, a lot of the people we're working with, we want to talk about policy. And by the way, Andrea, and some of you are going to know what this means. Jurisdictional government, and that's what we're pushing very hard, as, as in the biblical government of self-government, family government, ecclesiastic government, economic government, and civil government, and the way that you create public policy using that model. And by the way, Andrea, we've put enough time and God has graced us now with a policy analysis that is an answer to how can we be sure we have biblically based policy in what we're advocating? And that's a big deal. But jurisdictional government forces the issue of building civilization on the individual government and the self-government, and which presupposes the education of people knowing how to govern themselves and govern their lives and those they labor and work and live with. And that is when I talk about the kingdom net of Matthew 13, 47 to 50. As things crumble and fall apart, and they are going to, because they're based on lies and they're based on deceptions and they're based on hate ultimately. And they're based on my success at your cost. And from economics to sociology to psychology, wherever we want to go, the fallenness of man has built a contrived government, which is not going to, now I'm into Hebrews 12, 24 to 26. It's not going to, in the shaking that is coming, What is falsely built is going to be revealed to everybody. This is a huge opportunity for us, not just to say Jesus saves and you need to get saved, which we do. That's square one foundation. But moving from my birth to how shall I live? How shall I structure my life? That goes out to all people. And the invitation is, if you'll believe that God is smart enough and loving enough and cares enough about you, that he wants to reorder your life and he wants to reorder the culture in which you live, then the issue is no more just individual salvation. It's salvation because I love people and I want to see community 
in justice. I want to see community in freedom. And the only possibility of that is man living by every word from God. Right. The second point you make is to clarify who owns the earth. (laughs) Yeah, what a funny one, man. I'm laughing because God ought to get some credit where credit is due. He's smart enough to build this ecosystem that we can't possibly fathom the depth and the intricacy of it. I think it's wise that if anybody that smart, we ought to probably give him the the reality that he owns it and can do what he wants to do with it. The idea that Satan owns this thing or man owns this, the creator has got his fingerprints so deep. You've got to be a fool to look anywhere else. And this is where I'll put a plug in for Ted Sanquist's music, because when you listen to the songs that he has on that in coordination with your teaching, it bolsters you up to realize, how could I ever have considered this any other way? And you want to bang yourself against the head and saying, forgive me, Lord, for doubting your death and resurrection. You ask the question, what kind of death and resurrection do we believe in? Right. And it's an important question because I think we've reduced the death and resurrection to Christ to something that is so small that no wonder the world doesn't seem to be too afraid. As you put it, nobody gets bulging veins when people say, Jesus is my savior. They're like, okay, fine. That's lovely. Have a nice day. But when you say Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords, and you mean it, that's a big deal. Those who have upset the world have come to us, Acts 17. Those who say there is another king, one Jesus. That's what we are saying. There is another king, and he ain't a president, and it's not. nobody is democratically electing him. And then your third and final point was the role of the church. And I think we've already sort of covered that, that the church, not being the building at a specific address or a denomination, the people of God acting as an assembly or a congregation that says we represent our Lord and that we don't try to make these truces with the world system or the devil. And I want to emphasize, we're not talking about taking over as authoritarians. We believe that choice and the principle of choice co-bookend by sovereignty. God respects what he has given us enough. He's taking our surrender. He's not forcing our surrender. He's allowing us to surrender. When we finally see that he is a whole lot bigger, whole lot smarter than we are. And managing our own life by ourselves is a fool's game. We, when I talk, I always try and end, especially when I'm speaking to any secular audience, is our goal is to align life on this planet as closely as is possible with the word of God. We are not saying that we're going to try and force the word because in a pluralistic context, we can't do that. And I personally believe God himself would resist us in trying to produce a kingdom that was not centered in his love and justice. The only absolute authority is God. Now, we're watching the left globally. It's a full court press like basketball. We're watching a global full court press on on taking freedom and free choice away from as many people in as many ways as is possible. And the answer is to why are they doing is really simple. And I'll take another minute on this. I understand why the Davos crowd, the world order crowd, is 
wanting to get as much control of humanity as they can, because fallen humanity cannot really be trusted to produce anything that is going to be sustainable. And they believe that they're the smartest people and most powerful people on the earth. And from their point of view, it makes perfect logic to dumb down the masses because you don't want an intelligent group you want that would contend with you. You want compliance. And compliance is the big issue in the spiritual realm now. Now, why do they fear Christians? And why do they fear Muslims? They fear anybody who is committed enough to what they believe to actually die for it. Because in that act of death, history proves that it motivates people who see it, who wonder, what did they believe was so valuable in life? Because nothing is valuable enough to me in my life to want to die for it. And when they see somebody who has something that is willing to die, what is that? That fascinates people. And therefore, it's dangerous. It raises question marks in terms of should we obey? Should we comply? That is what is going on in the spirit right now. And it's amazing. You know, it makes you wonder how much demonic origin does COVID-19 really have? Is it just, I know it was permitted by God, but sometimes I wonder how much of the rules of the game allow Satan to actually interface with the material world which uh, would, would complicate this and may well have done that. Point being, we will not agree to walk away from wanting to liberate human beings by virtue of what Christ did at Calvary. We cannot, we must not. Love demands that anybody that can be free should be free. And anybody that has a pathway to freedom has got to bring that pathway to as many others as is possible. You know, we're back to the movie series, the three-part series about taking the red pill, not the the blue pill. Oh, the matrix. The matrix. You know, when I, I'll just close with this, Andy. When I saw the matrix, I, I got about 20 minutes into it. One of my children wanted me to go see it with him. And I started hearing what was in this. And I'm saying, who wrote this thing? This thing is the closest secular thing that I've seen to a, you know, a gospel of the kingdom. And certainly based on whether or not you wanted to take the red pill and get into absolute reality and whether or not you could handle absolute reality. I guess in one way, Andrea, that's what you and I've been here talking about. Who wants to handle absolute reality? Because absolute reality tells us we are in a war that has been resolved at Calvary, but God's people are involved in the mopping up operation thereafter. I think that's a good place to leave it, except for the fact that there will be people who say this is not enough of Dennis Peacock. How do I get more Dennis Peacock? So how might they reach you? How might they reach all the resources that you have put together? We have tons of material. So what you need to do, look up Go Strategic, or you can get to me through the Statesman Project, which is one of these global groups that we're bringing these leaders into, go to the statesmanproject.org or go strategic Inc. And obviously Andrea has been moved by this war thing that we did of preaching and music. And the, you know, Andrea, we've had many stories of little children who played the war over and over and over to the point where it broke. 
And I don't know what is in that. There was an anointing of God's spirit on that thing. Those of you that are interested based on what we're talking about, I'd urge you to order the war. You know, it's cheap. But we've got plenty of material for you. And then you can ask us, how do we get involved in the networks we're building? That would be the next question. I should point out that there is an MP3 on about an hour long of you preaching on it. But at least at this point, and I hope you change that, that people can acquire the compilation of music and preaching that currently is only available as a CD. I'm hoping that people will be able to purchase it as MP3 because yeah. I've discovered a lot of people don't have CD players anymore. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're on that. And uh, Ted and I, have, have, among other things that we're doing, we are super busy. Believe me, there is so much going on. I wish I could tell you what is going on, but I can't. We have a rule. We don't want the enemy to know what we're doing, which I know is a strange thing to say. You wouldn't take that position unless you want to win. And I happen to be a Christian who wants to win. Right, right. And I appreciate the fact that you don't name drop to show how cool you are or the people you're connected with because – I don't think in any sports competition you're turning over your battle plan to the other side. If no. you are, you're, you should be replaced. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're not doing that. Go to those websites. You got tons of stuff. I'm excited, Andrea, because I know the people that you know wouldn't be listening to this if they didn't have the same disease we do. <laughs> I call it supreme health personally, so I'm not going to call it a disease. No, no, I'm just listening. It's funny. I'm part Irish and the Irish gets stronger in me. And I'm serious when I say this, a sense of humor is a critical thing in a war. And uh, I find my Irish nonsense growing almost daily just for sheer relief when I hear the latest stupidity and the latest colossal screw up that the president or somebody else has done, I I need to be able to laugh. And I encourage everybody to encourage the Holy Spirit showing you how to do it. You and I will talk again, Andrea, I'm sure. Yes. And listeners, you can always contact us through our email out of the question podcast at gmail.com. I thank you for listening and I hope you've benefited. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.